freedom from human regulations through life with Christ. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I wonder what you would say that every religion has in common. So I think ultimately what every religion does have in common is a belief in some form of afterlife. That there is more to life than this material world in which we find ourselves now. I think how those different religions differ is not only the, the particular God they may worship, if they do worship a God, but how they believe that you attain that afterlife. And what will it be like if you do get there? Christians believe in a, a heaven and a hell. But probably the biggest misconception about Christianity is that 
getting to heaven, being with God, depends on how good you are, how well you keep the commandments, how often you pray, how many bad things you don't do. And so probably I think many people look at Christians and think, well, actually, I'm not really much worse than they are, so if it really did come to it, then I'd probably be okay. I think that's why when it comes to the session on the Christianity Explored course on grace, people find it a real challenge because suddenly all their preconceptions about Christianity are exposed. Suddenly all their preconceptions about themselves are exposed. And there's a certain vulnerability. Now, because what it clearly says in the course, in the biblical teaching, is that if you put your faith in all that stuff, in all that doing good and all that um, being right, uh, doing, following the rules, the traditions, coming to church, if that is what you're putting your trust in, then none of that will actually help you. If you were to die tonight and you were asked, why should you be allowed into heaven? Any answer that begins with the words, because I is not going to help you. It's because God, because God loved the world so much that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's that initiative of God to, to reach out to us and to reconcile us to him, as we were looking at a couple of weeks ago in this uh, series in Colossians. It's that that we call grace. It's that which um, Sally read out from Ephesians earlier in the service, where she read, For it's by grace you've been saved, and this not from yourselves, is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are saved. We receive eternal life. We get to heaven. Not by our works, but by God's grace. But ironically, that is the point at which many people feel uncomfortable, because in order to appreciate the full significance of God's grace, you're confronted with the possibility that for your whole life you've been putting your trust in the wrong thing. And part of man's natural fallen state is to think that he can do things on his own. We saw that in the Garden of Eden. We saw that in the Tower of Babel. And it's happened throughout history since. You see it in the determination of a young child saying, yeah, I want to have a go. You hear it from adults who refuse to admit that they're not able to do something. And it's not surprising that when you look at the difference between Christianity and other faiths, you see that every other religion is to do with man's own effort at pleasing a God or at improving himself. The Christian faith says it's not about achieving stuff in our own strength, but it's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is only possible through the grace, the undeserved loving kindness of God. So if you are asking the question here this morning, what if I am not religious? What if I am not able to, to do all these things, perform all these rituals? The answer you'll be pleased to hear is that the coming of Jesus meant the end of religion, the end of human tradition. And that's what we're looking at this morning, this passage from Colossians as we continue our sermon series. If you do have it there, if you'd like to turn to page 1183. Now remember, if, uh, Paul is writing here to those who it says in verse 6 are those of the church in Colossae who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. 
They have, like most of you here this morning, understood the gospel of grace. But Paul is concerned about how they're going to grow in their faith and the threats that exist to prevent them from growing in their faith. And the warnings we're going to look at in this passage this morning are warnings that we need to heed as well because they're still just as relevant for us today. So let's start with the challenge that is there in verse 6 and verse 7 of this passage from chapter 2. These are probably the key verses in the letter. They summarise what has gone before and what is to come after. Let's read them. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now let's just look at this for a minute. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, it says here. Notice it doesn't say here as you received Christ Jesus as Saviour. Obviously we have to do that as well. But here it says Christ Jesus as Lord, as ruler of your life. As you received him as Lord, you allowed him to rule over every aspect of your life. And to decide to follow Jesus will change your life forever. But it will be for the best. So you began to live in him, Paul is saying here, as he lives in you. And now the challenge is to continue to live in him. He's saying, keep going, don't give up. But the interesting thing here is not it's not keep going, don't give up, use every ounce of strength left in you. A bit like that, um, I'm not sure what program was, but I flicked onto it and there was this crazy guy stuck out in the Canadian wilderness doing some sort of endurance test. And he was there um, with his phone grabbed in his hand, um, He'd lost, I don't know how much weight. Um, his heartbeat was down to 28. Um, and he was desperate to make this call to get a helicopter to come in and just take him out. Um, and he didn't, you know. <laughs> and it says, but I didn't make the call. And um, you're just wanting to say to him, let's just make the call, just get out of there. You're going to kill yourself like this. Um, it's not that sort of endurance we're talking about here. It's trying to sort of um, draw on some inner strength. Now, this is continue to live in him. In Jesus Christ, rooted and built up in him. That is where we get our real strength. As any gardener will tell you, and I'm sure if Jeff were here this morning, he would tell you the health of a plant depends on the quality of the soil in which it is planted, in which the roots can grow. You know, the Bramley apple sitting out here in the, um, in the entrance. By the way, if you want to take some, feel free to do so. They're ones that were scrumped yesterday from next door. Um, they were obviously planted in good soil. It produced a good fruit. The roots were able to grow. I've got an olive tree at home in our patio, which is in a pot. I've had it a few years since my 40th birthday present, and it hasn't grown in that time. You know, not surprisingly, because it's, it's in a pot. The, the roots can't grow. They've got nowhere to go. If your spiritual roots are in Christ, then they have an infinite space in which to grow. And likewise, you have infinite potential for growth. Your ability to withstand attacks on your faith will not depend on how strong you are, but in what or in who your faith is rooted. If you are rooted in Christ, you'll be secure. And that's what this word here, strength, means secure. But if you're tempted to root it in something else, then you're going to be vulnerable. And that leads us on to the dangers of rooting our faith in wrong things, which we'll come on to in a minute. But before we do that, let me ask you a question. What helps us tell us how secure 
our faith is? What are the sort of signs that may give that away? Or signs that you may see in other people? Is it, I mean, you may think, well, maybe it's how well they know their Bible. Maybe it's um, how much they serve in the church. Maybe how confident they are in speaking to others about their faith. Maybe just how much they help others. But it's interesting what Paul says here is a mark of the strength of one's faith is that it's overflowing with thankfulness. And that's what Adam was uh, talking about earlier on with the, the children. He mentioned that reference from 1 Thessalonians where it says, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And the reason that thankfulness is so important is that if you're busy being thankful for for things that God has given you, then the devil is is not going to be able to get in and make you annoyed. He's not going to be able to make you critical. He's not going to be able to make you angry about things. It shows a gratitude for what God has done and an unwillingness to let our own failings or the failings of others get us down. There's so much in this letter of Colossians that reminds us just what we can be thankful for. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Let me just ask you, how thankful are you? How thankful are you? And if you don't know yourself, how thankful are you? Ask somebody who's close to you, um, your husband or your wife or a close friend. Ask them, how do you come across? Is your life full of thankfulness? Well, having said the Colossians, the challenge to continue in their faith, Paul goes on to warn them about what could prevent them from growing in their faith. What are the dangers to be aware of? And here we come on to the warnings. And the phrase there in verse 8 is, um, see to it. It's actually quite interesting. It's actually much stronger now. It's more of a beware, watch out for. Watch out for these dangers. Verse 8, see to it. Watch out that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. This is a a general warning here about being taken in by human teaching and tradition rather than depending on Christ. But if we look ahead in in verses 16 to 23, here we have three specific risks to look out for. It's these three I just want to look at here before we come back to the reassurance of verses 9 onwards. And the first danger of looking ahead to verse 16 is that of legalism. Let's just read 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. What was going on here was that there were some who were saying that the way to God was, was you know, the way to spiritual fullness was through keeping the dietary laws of the, the Old Testament, the special festivals of the Old Testament. And there were there in the Old Testament the clean and unclean foods, a distinction designed to encourage the people of Israel to, to um, think about purity and impurity. There were special feasts there in which um, people remembered what God had done for them. And these food laws and festivals were a good thing, but as it says here, it carries on in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, the substance however, is found in Christ. Shadows are produced by, by things, by substances. You know, young children are often not able to, 
to tell the difference. They keep chasing after a shadow, wondering why it keeps moving or disappearing. And Paul was saying, why waste your time chasing shadows rather than looking to where they're coming from and pointing to Jesus Christ? Jesus told people what they should be really concerned about when he said, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. What is most important is not obeying such laws out of out of ritual. It's the attitude of our hearts. Likewise with the special days when, when Jesus came, he fulfilled them all. We no longer worship on the Sabbath because we worship on the Lord, say the first day of the week, commemorating his resurrection and what that achieved. And I think it's important to to keep Sunday special as a day when we can focus on God and we can spiritually recharge ourselves through fellowship, through coming together. But it should be out of a desire to be close to God. Not out of a desire to make ourselves feel good by obeying certain rules. Because the ironic thing also about rules and regulations, although most of us hate having to keep rules and regulations, there's also something sort of attractive to us about them. It means... It means we are in control of our future. You know, we can ensure that we are saved. All we need to do is make sure that we follow those rules, that we've achieved sufficient grades to get to heaven. Or in the other case of other religions, to, to get to nirvana or to, to be reincarnated as a koala bear or something. And that is why there will always be man-made religions. You know, there will always be cults who take an essentially Christian teaching and add their own set of rules to it. And the result of such religions is either guilt on the part of those who feel they just can never live up to the expectations forced on them, or pride and judgmentalism on the part of those who are confident in their own abilities to do that. Before you think, well, we're okay, you know, we're not a cult, we're safe from that, we're an evangelical church after all. That doesn't mean that we are immune from legalism. You know, a faith which should be a joyful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it can be replaced by pride at having done my bit. You know, the Muslims pray five times a day. I'm on the refreshments rotor once a month. That is my bit. I can tick that box. And being judgmental of those we feel are not pulling their weight, who are not coming to the things we think they should be coming to, being critical of them instead of trying to help them, maybe, when they're struggling. Are we guilty of legalism without realising it? The second danger is that of superior experiences. Have a look at verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Now, it's not easy exactly to see what Paul is getting at here with the worship of angels. It may be a certain group of people who said they weren't good enough to pray to God directly 
and therefore they had to pray through angels, um, even though we're told that Jesus intercedes for us, that we can come into the presence of God because of Jesus. And so it's not really a humility, it's more of a false humility here. It also appears to be talking about people who claim to have had great visions, which um, have made them proud. They like to talk about their visions more than about Jesus and what he did on the cross. And these revelations have become more important to them because they were the only ones who received them. And that makes them feel superior to others. If you think of the cults, if you think of the Christadelphians, or the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Christian scientists and others, they were often started by one person who claimed to know more than anyone else about the Bible. Maybe they'd had a, a superior vision. They had superior knowledge. But in each case, the danger of all of those is, as it says here, they've lost connection with the head, Jesus Christ. Jeff was uh, preaching the other week on um, chapter 1, verse 26, where it talks there about the mystery. The mystery has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. It says, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mystery, in this context, is something that was hidden, but has been revealed. God has revealed himself to us in Jesus. But as Jeff was saying, there is a danger that it can lead to, to mysticism, you know, seeking truth beyond human understanding, finding a secret knowledge. And again, is this just a first century problem, the problem of Gnosticism as it was those days, or is it possible to fall into this trap of superior experiences today? I think it is, and I want to mention a couple of ways in which that can happen. There will be ways in which some Christians can come across as superior, and other Christians can feel inferior in their faith. One of those, maybe, is where Christianity is about an intellectual experience, you know, where we don't look to study the Bible in order to know God better, but to puff ourselves up with, as it says here, idle notions, to show others how knowledgeable we are, how clever we are, and can, we can intimidate them with, <coughs> with long words. As intellectual experience, it's also spiritual experience. You know, we, if you haven't had a certain experience, then you are somehow less of a Christian. Um, if you haven't spoken in tongues, if you haven't prophesied, if you haven't had words of knowledge maybe, then you haven't made it. That's not to say that some people aren't blessed with those, but um, are we being superior to others in the way we talk about it? Another one is maybe about the worship experience. You know, if you're not able to get yourself into a deep emotional state as you come together in worship, as you sing, then somehow you've missed out. You haven't reached fullness. Beware of superior experience. And finally, the third danger here in verse 20 onwards is false piety. Just look at verse 20 onwards. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom 
with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul was someone who saw the importance of restraining sensual indulgence, the importance of self-discipline. That is one of the fruit of the Spirit. He would also warn people against the love of money. Jesus himself, you know, told people not to worry about what they eat, what they wear. So you may ask, well, aren't these people here merely taking that teaching seriously and going without all those things? These are things maybe which may hinder their spiritual growth. And at first sight, that appears to be true. But when we look closer at what it is exactly that Paul is warning about, it's when that attitude becomes one of false piety, one of what's called asceticism. In the same way that we can follow rules and traditions to make ourselves feel good, we can also deny ourselves certain things to make us feel good. And what Paul is saying, that these things that we may be refusing in themselves are not necessarily bad. What he's saying is that um, if you are doing that to give the appearance of holiness and piousness, actually you're being very deceptive and you're being ungrateful to God who's given us things to enjoy. He's given us great pleasures and blessings. A few couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that in, earlier on in Colossians, all things were created by him and for him. Therefore, be careful about what you refuse. So the key warning is don't get caught in the trap of doing something in order to appear holy, in order to make people think how good you are. And also don't expect others to have the same ideas as you in terms of the way you, you live out your Christian faith. You know, some of you I know don't, don't drink, for example, don't drink alcohol, and may have good reason to do that. But I know also that you wouldn't criticise others who who would, or make a big thing of it, because that's between you, your conscience, and God. There are other, many other examples we could think of. To be careful of um, piety, false piety. Well, let's come on finally as we close to how Paul encourages the Colossians not to be taken captive, taken captive by what he calls hollow and deceptive ideas. Let's think how we can encourage those who are either struggling with this uh, sense of guilt that they're not able to live up to these expectations, or a lack of confidence. And here's the great reassurance in uh, verses 9 to 15. We haven't got time to look at um, these verses in full. Um, you could preach a whole sermon, you could preach a few sermons on verses 9 to 15. But let me just make um, two small points here. The first is there in verse 9. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought fullness. As we said a couple of weeks ago, Christ is more than simply God-like. He is God. In him we see God. But even more amazing than that is that in him we have been brought to fullness, it says here. Paul is saying that the Colossians have received Christ and therefore they are filled. They have forgiveness, they have salvation, they have the gifts of fullness. If we come to Christ for salvation, and if you haven't done that yet, if you are someone here this morning who has not yet done that, then I assure you that you will receive fullness of life. You will receive everything that we need this side of heaven. Fullness of life is ours to have in Jesus Christ. 
the other verses there, verse 13, where it says, He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. This charge against us is the fact that we are all guilty under God's law. We have all continually failed to meet his high standards. And however hard we try, we will never meet them perfectly. But the encouragement here is that God has cancelled that charge. He's taken it away. He's nailed it to the cross. It's there where Jesus died. So we don't need to carry around with us that baggage of guilt. Continually asking ourselves, have I done enough? That was the sad fate of Private Ryan in the film, if you ever saw it, Saving Private Ryan, set in World War II. It was a woman who, who had lost three um, sons in, in the Second World War and the US Army decided to, to send a team to bring back her fourth son. And uh, this team goes out, he's behind enemy lines and gradually, one by one, members of this team are killed in battle. And finally, the final scenes, the, the captain himself is lying, dying. And he says to Private Ryan... He says, James, he says, earn this, earn this. And the scene shifts to 50 years or so later where Ryan is there sitting by the, the grave of that captain. And he's there with his wife, his children, his grandchildren. And with tears in his eyes, he says this, he says, my family is with me today. And he's speaking to the captain in his mind. He's saying, every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes I have earned what all of you have done for me. Then he turns to his wife and asks, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Those words of the captain to Ryan, earn this, left him with a terrible sense of guilt that made his life miserable. And many people go through that same experience today. Am I good enough? Well, let me leave you with those words and let them ring out in your hearts. Jesus forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That is amazing grace. That is what we're going to sing in a minute as our final hymn. But let's uh, first have a moment of quiet just to... Um, Reflect on what we've heard and allow God to speak to you.